Welcome to Thawhack. So I, I want to work backwards from what I know about you already. Okay. So from what Chris tells me, you're, you're a scientist mm -hmm. and you're an engineer. And why, why a scientist? Like not a lot of people say that they're going to, I think maybe they do. Maybe a lot of people want to grow up to be scientists. Is that something that started with you from when you were a kid? Or I, I think that science is a process. It's like a way of thinking. And so I was trained in that from when I was young. So because my dad was an aircraft mechanic and my mom was a accountant. So I've always been really good with numbers and then with critical thinking and like, here's how you solve a problem. And like my dad was working on airplane engines and fixing them at the time. And so there is the theoretical way of here's what you do. And then the practical thing that you learn from hands-on experience. Like if you've ever seen an engine taken apart, mm -hmm. um, they actually take every single spark plug and number them. So it's number one to number one. This is spot 12 to uh, spark plug number 12. Because the wear is going to be uneven depending on the di different parts. But no one teaches you that in school, mm -hmm. textbook. And, and so I think that it was partly just how I was raised and, and how I grew up um, that made me say, okay, there's the, um, you know, I'm Asian, so I've studied a lot. There's like the theory behind how you do stuff, but then there's also the practical side of stuff. And and so you Things wanna... that you can't really learn or put in a book. I, um, I used to use this example with people and it was a question I would ask. And I said, what would you rather? Uh, a surgeon who was a C student, but has had like 500 successful surgeries or a surgeon who has had no surgeries, but got straight A's. And I think nine times out of ten, people prefer the guy who had the successful surgeries because, yeah. like, you know, that hands-on knowledge is, is priceless. You can't buy that in a school. That 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 experience, and then also um, you'll deal with a situation that you weren't expecting at all, like in surgery, like, mm -hmm. oh, that happened. And so you want someone that has dealt with that and has some way of solving that problem because it's not textbooked. Mm -hmm. So I find a lot of life is like that. It's... There's the science of something, there's the precision of something, and then there's also the art of it. Um, and you have to kind of understand that. I like how you put that. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I got my pilot's license years ago. Really? Yes. <laughs> I can sm uh, fly small planes. And I think that came from my dad again. Mm -hmm. um, but when I was learning how, like, systems for airplanes, I hung out with mechanics. Because I said, well, okay, the handbook says, you know, you have to have all these little screws in there. But which one, like, what happens if they're not there? And so the mechanic said, if you don't get these two in the front of the um, engine cowling, the whole thing is going to shear off in flight. I'm like, okay. so And it's two, probably, like, those nuances that you can't really get without, like, sort of just being there and sort of experiencing it and sort of, like, locking on and, and so on. So what you seem to be like this really driven person or you're like searching for something or you just constantly get bored maybe? Uh, I, I have curiosity that also comes from being a scientist. So I actually just, I'm curious about a lot of different things. And so I, it's also meeting other people. I like going outside of what I know and learning. So I think that's part of it that um, we have a culture in our company of learning and we're 
those kinds of people that are curious and it's like, well, hey, this is a really cool problem. I never thought about it. How, how would I solve this? And there's probably 10 different ways to solve something. But in our company, we run it like a meritocracy. So it's the best idea that wins. So people come and bring all sorts of different ways of doing things. And we're like, oh yeah, that one would be faster. That one would be better. And sometimes in the interest of doing something fast, we'll say, well, this is the best option for now, but there's probably 10 different ways that we could do this and let's go through some. But then you, you're managing at that point, like, you know, without ego, you'd have to be able to sort of step away from yourself and admit, Hey, I'm not, I don't have the best idea right now. A lot of people struggle with that. Yeah. And I think it comes back to my co-founder and I, because Josh is a world-class industrial designer. So he thinks in 3D cross-sections and I'm a scientist and finance person. We completely come at it completely the opposite way when we're problem solving. So we disagree more than 50% of the time. And we're always able to resolve our differences and then figure out what the path forward is. And it comes from this respect, like he's speaking from a point of view that I don't understand and I need to really drill down to understand that and vice versa. And so we kind of come to the best idea just by cross crossing and meshing different ways of thinking about something. And I, I would think that's, that's perfect because he's sort of operating from your blind spot. So you guys pretty much cover each other. Yeah. From, I, from all angles. I think that's a mistake that a lot of people do when they're starting a company. They're, 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 you know, you start it with your friends, they have similar backgrounds and then you get the same point of view and you don't want that when you're starting a company because the stuff that I spend my time on is the stuff that I don't know. So having someone who compliments me, who I really trust, who covers that angle that I, you know, it's not my strength or something that I'm even aware of or good at is actually the perfect partner for you. So before we we jump forward to Catalyst case, because I feel like there's everything in between you becoming an engineer and, and a Catalyst case, where did you study engineering and what type of, I mean, you're a scientist, is there, are there like specific, specific like disciplines yeah. or how does that work? Yeah, I studied biochemistry for my undergrad. So I worked in molecular biology. So I was cloning genes and purifying proteins. That was in Canada, in uh, British Columbia. Like I grew up in Vancouver. And um, so I did uh, my undergrad there. And then I realized that to go further, I either would go into academia or go into a lab, but I wasn't sure that I really wanted to be a scientist. So I, I said, well, let me take some other courses and see if this is it. And my mom was an accountant, so I knew I was good at numbers. And I thought, I'll take some business courses and I'll see. And I found finance was my thing. Like I just, I just get numbers at, in a way that it's just intuitive. And, you know, we could talk about valuation. We could talk about you know, what's uh, uh, the stock price of something is worth. Like it, It's just kind of how my brain is wired. And so I, I ended up um, doing my MBA, CFA, CPA, CMA, and went into um, investment banking after that and um, actually covered certain sectors that were harder to cover, like um, biotech, uh, pharmaceuticals, um, tech, uh, insurance, and you know, that's where it's not just like the fundamentals of any business is the same. These ones require some more in-depth understanding to understand how those companies trade, how they're valued, um, what the value drivers are. Um, and so I've always been someone that's curious and wanted to learn different things. I have so many questions now. So a ton of the stuff you're you're telling me that you've done 
I feel like most people would have just took one of the things you've done and sort of been like, yeah, I, I did a great job. I'm accomplished. Someone that's a pilot is just, yeah, I'm a pilot. I'm not like a pilot slash engineer slash like, I don't know anything about genes or anything mm-hmm. like that. You have to be like ridiculously disciplined to kind of just jump from the, like, you know, this different industries, different fields. And like, how do you stay so focused? I, it, it's, um, so you touched on the ego earlier, like recognizing that when you switch fields, you are starting from scratch and you can't bring your ego into that. Like you can't say, Hey, I'm the expert in this because I, yeah, I was the expert in that, but that was like, you know, two years ago or five years ago, and it's not relevant for what I want to know now. So you just need to say, okay, this is the goal of what I really want to focus on now. And I'm super curious about it. And when you're curious about something that your passion kicks in and being a scientist, I have a process to learn. So I can say, well, is it this that really drives um, this sector or this business or this market or this, this thing that I really want to understand? And I have the patience and the discipline to follow through to test all these different assumptions and say, okay, here's, this is how that works. Um, And so it's really like having that training and that process really helps me. But I guess mindset wise, just being fundamentally curious and wanting to understand something. Now to reach and touch on the, and I just want to get your opinion on this, the investment banking thing, you, you mentioned valuations, the way companies and startups are valued now in terms of investment, like, what do you think about that? Like when you have a company like um, WeWork, where they're, they're not really making a profit, but, you know, they have valuation in billions based off of like, you know, what investors or like, I guess, SoftBank specifically sank into the business. Do you think that's like something that is like, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's something that's sustainable or... It's not sustainable in general. So if you look at the venture cap world, there's really a divide there. So there is a lot of startup capital out there, um, especially for early stage startups. But what you don't realize is one in 10 startups is successful at each phase. So by the time you get to much later stage companies that are adequately funded, you're talking about, you know, one in a thousand or something like that, 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 that has gone through, gone through those rounds or one in 10,000. Um, so a lot of people will fund stuff at the early stage and, um, you know, if the idea is not good or they don't get capital or they don't like, you actually want stuff that fails fast because you don't want to tie up capital in it. And so it really should be the best, um, ideas get allocated capital um, there's a, a divide in terms of financing to bring a company further along and commercialize themselves. And it's either you go to China and you focus on a Chinese market and the big three companies there, or you focus on Silicon Valley and focus on getting, you know, bought out by, uh, or, or partnering with a corporate partner, um, in the, the tech space. And, um, that's, ultimately where most companies end up. One of the problems is the valuations are, are very silly because no no one expects a tech company to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the interesting macro trends that you see because of that is um, all these companies get venture cap money. 40% of venture cap money is right now going to Facebook, Google, and Amazon for advertising. And the guys who are running the ads for these uh, uh, companies don't have the background in marketing. There's no deep understanding of digital marketing. So what you're seeing is inflation in ad spending. So like, you know, the return on ad spend that 
they expect is very, very low because they're just focused on brand awareness because they're trying to acquire users. They're not trying to generate a model that makes money, that is sustainable, that's profitable. So when people are burning through their ad budgets that way, it drives out advertising costs because everyone's bidding against that. So it, it affects like older school economy companies as well. So you... And I'm just going to keep my transitions are crazy. Like, you know, that's how my mind works. I'm trying to sort of lock it down and be more focused, but I I jump all over the place. So my segues. Um, So coming from that point, you're an engineer. You've tried all this crazy stuff. Knowing what you know from the investment side, you decide to start a company. Mm Mm-hmm. Was Catalyst the first company or is Catalyst like the just the evolution of where you started? Well, my co-founder and I actually started working on a parkour brand with five other designers. And we found, hey, six designers and one business person really doesn't build a company. Mm-hmm. And so we said, okay, after you know a, a month or two of doing that, I said, okay, sorry, like this, it, this isn't working. It doesn't make sense. And in that process, my co-founder, he was my first climbing partner in Hong Kong. So we're both avid rock climbers. Um, I trust him with my life. And we said, okay, we actually work really well together. So why don't we start our own thing? And let's find the idea that really resonates with both of us. And, you know, we, because we are climbers, we would spend our time outside and I'd go rock climbing and take my phone. And this was back with the iPhone 3. And I take my phone and put it in my backpack and never take it out. And Josh is like, why don't we build a waterproof case? Um, like, sure, that'd be awesome. Like, I would totally use that if that existed. Um, can we do it? And he said, yeah, it'll be easy. It, famous last words, oh, my God, no. waterproof cases are the most hardest thing that you could do in the world. <laughs> like, I mean, in terms of logistics, what's the hardest part of building a waterproof case? If you look at our waterproof case for the iPhone 11, there's 46 component parts. We work with multiple subcomponent uh, part um design like for different um, subcomponent suppliers we spec everything and then we pull it all together the tolerances are 0.05 millimeters that's a fraction of a hair and so we're pulling all these parts together we're doing 100 percent testing to make sure it's waterproof to its rating and we have to test every unit before we ship it because otherwise i wouldn't use it i wouldn't know that it's truly waterproof to its rating so on our um, phone cases the rating is um 33 feet waterproof every unit tested um or or 10 meters but on our watch case it's 330 feet waterproof every unit tested yeah i've i've been in a pool with the watch before and also i i have one one partner that i do not trust with with my life so i don't i don't know if that's like the the recipe for like a successful business because if so we're we're not going to make it (laughs) um so you you this started from you rock climbing, which is, I think, the best thing mm-hmm. because, like, you're using the products. You're not just someone who's speculative and, like, you know, this is a fad and you're jumping on the, the, the bandwagon. So what followed that after – how long did it take for you to make the waterproof case? Was that the first product? Yeah, that was or- our first product. We did that for the iPhone 4. We launched on Kickstarter um, back in 2011, and we got funded, and then we um, – attracted attention from these large case companies and we picked and partnered with one and did a co-brand with Griffin and by that time it was for the iPhone 5 and so they what got a so Griffin? Griffin got bought by Incipio I think mm. a few years back okay uh, yeah I remember those days yeah and then uh 
Um, we did a co-brand with them. They got us placed in retailers around the world. And we found, wow, it's really hard to work with some of these case companies. The way they think and operate is completely the opposite of how we do it. Because um, we don't know any better. We didn't come up in this industry. We're just like a, a designer and a scientist, a finance person. Sometimes the best that's the best way. You're coming at an angle that most people wouldn't have come out of. And most people sort of follow paths that have already been laid out yeah. versus like, you know, just kind of figuring out their own way. Yeah. I, I explained to people we're not like we're more like a car company than a case company, because if you think about a normal case, it's a piece of plastic or metal or rubber. It's got cut out holes so that everything works. With our cases, it can, like, for a waterproof case, everything's fully sealed and covered, but has to fully function. Yeah. So with all the complexity and all the parts, like, you layer on 44 more parts on top of a regular case. And when we talk to the case companies, we're like, wow, they actually have no idea how to do this. I would ask, who's your material scientist? Like, can we have a conversation? And they're like, what? Like, who? We don't we just have put, that. We just put plastic on a phone. Yeah. 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 So it was like our business is just so different. Um, and because of that, because we started out in waterproof, by the way, that's one of the hardest things that you could do. Everything um, else was cake. Yeah. Because waterproof is um, the weakest point is what fails. So it doesn't matter if you have the perfect design. It's also making sure that you can execute on that product and making sure that it works. If you can't design a process um, that works for manufacturing where you can control those tolerances and get that level of precision and do it consistently. And consistently means you don't have a huge amount of scrap, which means you don't have a lot of waste because that eats into your profits. So trying to do that is really, really tough. So my favorite part of my Catalyst case, because I, I use it all the time and this isn't like some type of shameless thing, but um, that little dongle on the side, it's super obvious. How'd you come up with that? I, I haven't seen it on any other case. I was sort of waiting for someone to start copying you guys. I don't know if you guys have been like keeping an eye out for that. Yeah. But no one, no one does that. We've got a bunch of patents on that. Um, so it was something that we started with the iPhone um, 5 case, like the waterproof case. And there was five component parts. And so, you know, we had a engineer at the factory that was working on the tooling that had to go and keep modifying the parts just to make sure that they fit together and would engage and rotate properly. So we had that really dialed in over time. So now it's kind of a standard feature that we have. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Joshua was like, well, I think that rather than um, doing this up-down toggle process, it's not ideal. Um, it wears too easily. But if we did a little rotational thing that just turns it into like a really nice knob, and, and also you'll notice that when you rotate this thing, it clicks like yeah. it, it has this really satisfying feel to it. It does. Um, that's actually something that we thought about intentionally, like the buttons, how they feel, how they actuate. Like there's, it looks deceptively simple, but there was a ton of thought process that went it into it. It was like very, products. like it is very satisfying tactile like experience. Yeah. The, and that's proprietary. Like no one else could. Like you guys have the patents on that. We have the patents on that. Um, I, I we do a lot of um, enforcement. Uh, so we enforce on seven hundred marketplaces around the world because we sell in seventy countries. Um, but yeah, that's something that we invented years and years ago. Sticking like sticking your finger like we have a case and you have to kind of jam your finger in that little that little like a uh, I don't know what's it called. It's like a little yeah. hole. Yep. It's a, it's a it's a pain in the ass and it gets it gets dirty and it's, it's it's just, I, I love that. I think that's my favorite part of the case. Yeah. I don't drop my phone often. 
So I would buy the case just for that little amount. Yeah. I, a, a lot of people really like that feature. I mean, my other favorite feature is the lanyard because I'm a climber. Yeah. So I need to go hands-free. And if I'm on public transportation and someone bumps me, my phone falls down the crack, then I'm on the subway. Like, I'm that, my phone's gone. Yeah. Like, like, forget if it's dropped. Like, how do I get down onto the tracks and pick this thing up? You know, so I'm always a little bit paranoid but this thing has saved my life many times so now i'm i'm thinking about you as a person and i'm like june strikes me as as someone who's very pragmatic like you know like does the number of someone and so forth and then you throw in rock climber which doesn't really strike me as like the safest activity I've been doing it for so long now. It's been 20 something years. And um, same with Josh. I mean, when you're, a, it's not something that you start to pick up in your 40s usually. But if you started when you're young, you know exactly what you're doing. It's all just physics. So it's a lever system. Like I'm very careful when I climb and I am taking calculated risks and I and um, managing based on the situation outside. Um, and so I've climbed in 12 countries. I mean, when you have that level of experience, then you know what you're doing. And now I find that my risk tolerance has changed since we've had our company because it's, it's kind of like having a baby. Mm-hmm. Things that you would do when you were younger, you're like, hey, that's not worth it. Yeah. Um, and so I have those thoughts from time to time. And I'm like, oh, Josh is climbing. I'm delaying him. I cannot. Let's play the game of don't drop the co-founder. You know? okay. Like, and I'm like, that's not an option. So, so you just um, your your tolerance for risk changes with time. But if it's something that you've been doing forever and ever, um, like say it's skateboarding or something like that, you're super good at it. It's something you picked up as a kid. You'd still be doing that. You know, you wouldn't think it's dangerous. I don't know. I, I, it depends on my insurance. Like, I, you know, it's. I, I don't bounce back the way I used to. Yeah. Um, would you ever climb Everest? No, no, that's a different kind of climbing. Yeah, that's. Too, yeah. yeah, that's. I, did you see the movie? There's a movie yeah. called Everest. And the stats are like one in three people. It doesn't make it. Yeah, that. Those aren't good numbers. I'm not, yeah. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Yeah. I have these irrational fears about activity. Something as simple as like ice skating, I mm-hmm. won't go because I have this like fear, like I'm going to slip. And someone's going to skate by and like chop off one of my fingers. Oh my god! But I feel like that's something that can happen though, and because of that small chance, I'm I'm not going to go ice skating. Very unlikely. Very very unlikely. But yeah, it can happen. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> if I go ice skating and I show up one day and I'm missing a finger, June, like I'm I'm it's it's going to be rough for me. Yeah, but Rich, just watch your kids, and when they go ice ice skating, they have no fear and they don't even think about it because they don't know any better. Yeah. They, they don't know what to be afraid of. There's a certain level of happiness that comes from that. But, you know, like you see that when we were kids, we had no fear. Like it, it's something that just became ingrained over time. That's also, um, okay, so so in climbing and also in life, there's a mindset um, that you need to really distinguish. Like to be a really good climber, part of it means coming overcoming your mental fears Mm -hmm. so like physically i might be really high up and i might be safe but i don't feel like i should fall that's a mental fear if i'm close to the ground and i don't have my um a proper anchor system and i don't have quick draws in close to the ground i know that if i fall i might hit the ground so that's a true fear like you um at a certain level of your game no matter what it is you need to be able to distinguish, hey, is that a real fear or is that an inauthentic fear? 
And and how do you differentiate this? Most people deal with fear of failure, and it paralyzes them. Like they, it stops them from doing stuff. And if that's the thing that stops you from doing something, you've actually lost already because you didn't even give your chance yourself a chance to succeed or even try. And so most people are more afraid of like a fear of failure, um, or, or looking good, or, or you know they're they're really attached to the result. So much so that, you know, they won't even step out uh, of their comfort zone and try something new. Um, and that's also true in business. So being able to distinguish between real risks and inauthentic risks is really, really important. It's it's tough because when what we're talking about is essentially somebody's like programming. You, mm-hmm. you're, you've spent years of your life being afraid of something or having a misconception or, you know, whatever it is. And someone comes to you in in a very, like, you know, logistical, like, you know, it's a very logical way, I mean, explains why you shouldn't be afraid of that thing. But you're fighting years and years and years of programming. That's that's not really easy to do. No, it's not easy to do. Uh, One thing is my, because of our roots, my co-founder and I naturally, like, we're in a business where we invent stuff. We invent products that didn't exist. It, It wasn't based on data. It wasn't based on, hey, there's lots of people selling this, so we should go and do that too. Like That's how almost every other company comes up with products in the world nowadays. They do the market research. They say, hey, this category is selling well. These kinds of products are selling well. That's where we should invest and focus on building products. At Catalyst, we're like, hey, I think that there's an unmet need. I really like these AirPods, um, but I think that it's super slippery and I would really like to be able to attach it and not lose it and like just be able to go hands-free because you know that's that's a problem I have with that product and so like that that's the process where I'm saying hey there's an unmet need that I think I have maybe other people have it too let me go build a product for that and then let me test it launch it out there and usually what we do is we'll smart start small the product may not be highly relevant to a wide audience. We don't know. We're not operating off of data like everyone else is and saying, hey, like there's millions This is a market where we feel like we could, we could play around. We're saying, hey, there's an unmet need and here's a, a idea that we have that we think that, you know, more than one person will have and let's see if it makes sense for a lot of people. We'll do a production run, like we'll start smaller just so we can test the market and then see if it... If it's successful, then we'll sell more and more and we'll we'll scale up production and we'll look at iterating. Like if you look at our products, there's been a huge evolution of our, our products because we're using them. We're getting consumer feedback. We're use, like um, Josh takes our watch case scuba diving and he's like, oh, the Apple watch itself glitches out at around 20 meters or 66 feet. So, you know, like what, like what does that do to the user experience or what can I modify to make this work better? How do I make this a better product? So we're constantly um, looking at things a little bit differently and we're very comfortable with that risk because he's a designer and I'm a scientist. So, you know, when you're in the business of inventing something, you have to have some comfort with the unknown. And, but. I mean, at at some point, you you want to like sort of mitigate that risk somehow, and sort of. And the finance part of me says, let's mitigate that risk by just doing a smaller amount, uh, smaller quantity to test this first, because anyone who's selling product, the business that you're in is inventory management. If you make too much and it doesn't sell, you're gonna take a loss. If you make too little. That's okay. Like as long as you can scale up and sell more, like and ramp up production to meet demand, and you need to figure out how to do that over time. So, I 
I, I go back and forth in, in this thing, and I think some people are the the way LeBron James is like just this genetic miracle. I guess I feel like certain people are born to do things. Like you know, you're 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 born risk adverse, or you're not. Mm-hmm. Some people are born to be entrepreneurs. They, I do you feel like this is something you're going to be one way or another anyway, or you just kind of fell into it? Yeah. What, one thing I've noticed is that if you look at, when you talk to people, you'll notice this distinction. Like they have a background reference conversation that is either I am capable or I'm not capable. And so if you, <laughs> if you know me, um, I've been told my whole life, hey, you can't do that. No, no, there's no way. You know, like you're a woman or you're a minority. You're, you're like, oh, you're not going to go do this. And I'm the kind of person that's going to dig in and say, no, I'm going to show you. Of course I can do this. So my background conversation is, of course I'm going to do this, which is something that has helped me get all of these results in my life. Because, you know, when I deal with adversity or people saying, no, I can't, I'm like, okay, well, let me figure out how. And, um, you know, you have people that you talk to and they're like, oh, I I totally would do that, but um, I'm not capable. And there's a background conversation that holds them back. Like they probably are capable, but they have this. Where do you think they they get that that internal dialogue from, that voice in your head that says, no, you can't? Like, do you, again, do you think that's something that you inherit from your parents or? I think that's developmental. It comes from when you were a, a child and it's reinforced through experiences in life. And so if someone had to deal with a lot of failure and they had a conversation like, oh, of course, I'm just going to fail at this. Um, Then you spend your life saying, okay, I don't want people to find that out about me. So I'm not going to try things. I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to do things this way because, you know, like in reality, I don't think I can do this. Or it... I really want to, but... Like you you don't want to be perceived or or seen as a loser or you you don't want to take the chance of failure. So that keeps you from going for it so i think in a way you you have to be more afraid of not winning than of losing i i think yeah i and i think it's a fundamental difference like you'll notice it when you're talking to people you'll be like wow this person like the all the odds were against them there was no consensus that said that they were going to be successful or maybe there was like for some people that have a whole background of, you know, they had the right parents, the right school, the right upbringing, the right jobs. They might be the they people. Were, they're that, being so. groomed for certain. Like, I, I've seen that. And then a lot of those, some of those people will have, um, a, like, this feeling of an imposter syndrome because the expectations are so high that they're wow. saying, well, maybe I, I like, I'm probably going to fail. Like, there's a secret fear of failure in the background and a conversation i'm not capable we were talking about that once it's funny that you bring up imposter syndrome because we've been talking about that and um they touched on it um in joe rogan's podcast because Mm -hmm. joe rogan was like i think generally most people walk around like and really have this internal dialogue where they feel like yeah i'm really i'm really full of shit like Mm -hmm. i'm not i'm not supposed to be here i can't believe even sometimes like you know the people i hang out with i'm like why am i here Mm -hmm. Is that something, I think, there was an article, and I think it was Essence or something, that I think minorities deal with this more so than, than anybody else, but I I do sometimes go through the, this this isn't right, or this can't be me, or, you know, how do you work past that, or, or don't you, or do you kind of just pretend until it's just not there anymore? 
I don't have it so much because I've I I feel like I've earned it. Um, and I've earned it by just not being afraid and also showing up. What I mean by that is, almost everything I've done in my life, I've been the only girl in a group of men. Um, whether that's banking, like my pilot's license, uh, rock climbing. Um, I'm the only, like one of the few female CEOs in consumer electronics. Like all the other guys are guys that I know. Same with Amazon sellers, uh, e-commerce sellers. Like I'm going to yeah, conferences. Chris, Chris and mentioned something about Amazon or something like something like that. You're like one of the only women or one of the top women or something like that. Yeah. You're like super accomplished. Yeah. It, it, but it's also just um, women don't speak up. We're kind of trained to, uh, and and this is fascinating because our company has an incredible amount of diversity. We have uh, 12 nationalities, 22 languages spoken, and there's no one dominant culture. Um, And so it's incredibly international and diverse. We're headquartered in Hong Kong, but you get people that speak all these languages. I, I mean, there's two guys in my company that are Pakistani, Muslim, speak Cantonese better than I do. Their Chinese is literally like way, way, way better than mine. Um, And just switch different languages all day long. And people come into our company and they're like, what happened? Like, this is so weird. It's like the the UN is here. Um, and it forces... Was that like intentional? That or? was by design as well. Because we want people to not say, hey, this is how we do things. Because most people go into a company and they're thinking, I need to survive this company. So here's how we do things in America. Or here's how we do things in Hong Kong. And you'll get these people that um, have this group effect that think the same way. And because we're a design company, design development marketing company, we're coming up with unique ideas. We're inventing stuff. We're creating this platform for creativity and a meritocracy for different ideas. So we encourage diversity because that's where you get your best ideas. So it's the opposite of most people. And with that, that comes a... a, um, a whole set of rules, like um, we're very team oriented and it drives respect. So you can't really have stars in the company. If you had a star, it wouldn't work because they would say, hey, my idea is better than everyone else's. So that's ego. Um, but if you get a bunch of team players that respect each other, that are curious about other people's points of view, that is, are open to learning, uh, keep in mind we sell in 70 countries. So our people are interacting with different cultures, different languages. Um, different um, audiences, different segments of the market all day long. And then is, there's probably no one right answer because one what may work in one market may not work in the other one. So Yes, exactly. And it kind of is pervasive in, in the culture of the company from the point of uh, designing, developing products through to how we market and present the brand to consumers and, and um, that consumer experience as well. Well, I mean, you're... M- Definitely way more accomplished than your average person. Again, like we're, we're running through your resume. It's it's insane so far. There's probably a bunch of stuff we haven't touched on yet. What drives you on a day-to-day basis? What makes you want to go out and, and do all of this? I like learning a lot. Um, I enjoy the journey. So I'm in a few groups that are um, made up of like really successful companies in e-commerce, like direct-to-consumer brands. Um, Amazon focus brands, uh, retail, like uh, global brands. And, you know, it's a journey. It's a ride. It's been 10 years of doing this and us pivoting and figuring out what works and trying new things. 
I really like the process uh, that we're on where we're learning and, you know, I really enjoy that. I enjoy the people that I get to meet, I'm exposed to. I also intentionally go and seek out different groups because I don't want to get myopic and think, hey, this is the, my universe is really small and I'm just going to focus on this area of the market or these kinds of people. I want to see what other people think in other areas. And that really opens my mind, broadens my perspective. And and you're the outlier because most people are tribal and once they've sort of locked into a group, they're like, This is this is up, this is my team. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone who's not my team is is wrong or they're the enemy or like, you know, just there's a negative connotation that goes with not being a part of us. I think that's true to a certain extent. So yes, I fit into these different groups and different tribes. Um but that keeps you from really growing and we're a global brand we want to be a household name we want to be relevant to a wide audience when you look at catalyst like our marketing isn't about us it's about how you're going to use this product and so for it to be relevant for you and for me to figure out the mindset of the consumer I need to be open to that. I need to not know them in advance. I need to be curious. I need to learn from them and say, hey, this is actually what you care about. And so this is the kind of product that I'm going to build for you. And this is why you should have it because this it, it meets this need that you probably didn't even know you needed. But the moment you saw it, you're like, yes, thank you for making that. Everything I never knew I wanted, basically. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So... Let's let's say tomorrow, right? Because I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of the product. You're always like, you know, climbing mountains, like you know, literally, and like you know, not so much, like who's the song? Sorry. Uh, so figuratively and literally, you're always climbing these mountains. Tomorrow, Catalyst is a household name. What else would you like to maybe accomplish or look into or explore or something like that? So. I mean, people ask me what the goal is with our company a lot of the time, and um, it's not, I, 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 we enjoy the journey, and even if we were to exit the business, because people ask me that all the time, like, it's not really a focus. I, you know, I used to work in uh, mergers and acquisitions, so I used to buy and sell companies for a living, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that would be great, but then what am I going to do with myself? I'm the kind of person that would still be working. My co-founder is still the kind of person that would be creating products. We just like doing that. That's what we want to be doing. Um, you know, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what that says is, you know, when your basic needs like food and shelter and those things are met, you have a higher set of needs. It might be recognition. It might be status. It could be uh, different things. But, um, you know, for, for a lot of people, if you think about what money is, money is a piece of paper with ink on it, right? It doesn't mean anything. It means what you ascribe it to mean, like what you make it mean. And so a lot of people hold themselves back from doing a lot of things they want because they say, I don't have money or I have money or whatever. There's a conversation that everyone has around money. And for me, I think, oh, you know, if I'd be doing the same thing with or without money, it's kind of irrelevant. I like the journey I'm on. I'm going to choose the journey I'm on. If I don't enjoy it that's a problem and there's something that i need to change about how i'm 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 operating but for now it's been a, a really cool ride and it's it's awesome when i hear stories from people like i meet new people and they're like i bought three of your cases before i even met you or you know it protected my my phone from a roller coaster drop 
um, it's just really cool to be able to see it out there in real life for someone else where it has meaning for them. And it's, you know, something that you invented in the world. Does that make sense? It's, it's yeah, you, you made something. You, yeah. you created something and like, you know, Catalyst is sort of like your baby and yeah. you don't really see yourself moving past or selling or anything like that. Or am I, am I all? Yeah. It, I mean, if it, we, we're always going to be creating Money's products. not the motive. It, money can't be a motive. It like for a lot of people get sidetracked by that and money should never be a motive for what you do. Like a lot of people, um, hold back on things that they've always wanted to do because they say someday, maybe when I have enough money, I'll go and do that. I'll go and travel the world. Um, if you wait until you're 65 and you have a lot of money, you might not be in the best shape of your life. You might not be able to do half the things that you wanted to do. So, you know, that opportunity is already gone by the time you waited for that to happen. So I strongly believe in having the kind of life that you want to have. If it's um, philanthropy and giving back, you should be doing that now and finding a way to incorporate that. And a lot of people think that, no, no, I'm too small. I, I don't have an impact or I need money to have an impact. That's not true at all. You know, I think that you happiness comes from having the kind of life that you want to live for. And, you know, if you're not here tomorrow, you should have had a full life and given yourself permission to do that from the outset. So then are, do you feel fulfilled or satisfied? Do you have anything else that you still feel like you need? There's, uh, it, I'm the kind of person that values experiences. So I love having experiences. I love um, the journey I'm on. I love that I'm still learning. I'm learning from a lot of really smart people out there in the world. I'm trying new things. Um, I, I, I feel like I'm at a different level than I was before. Like I'm, I'm participating more in a lot of, um, you know, e-commerce groups, um, uh, female entrepreneurship groups. Um, it's an interesting conversation with women. I noticed this in our company. So um, even though we had this incredible amount of diversity, the young women in our group weren't in, on our team weren't speaking up. And I was like, wow, this is a weird phenomenon because, it, you know, there's professions like accounting where more than half the women um, start out in that field. And then when you go to the partner level, there's only like a, a fraction of partners that are women. And like, it can't just be women having kids. And so like, I'm curious about things. So I'm like, why is that? And I realized that part of it is when I look at young women today, they don't speak up. When you have young men in your company, they're, they're more likely to act based on bravado and ego and say, they've been empowered to like sort of speak up and speak their minds and like, your your opinion is valid regardless of experience or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And and the young women, you need to encourage them. And I was like, God, oh, this this is weird because we've created this great environment and no one feels really discriminated, um, that I know of at least. Um, and it's it's an amazing melting pot of a culture, um, with diversity and yet they're not speaking up. And I found I had to encourage them. And I was like, Wow, that's really interesting to see. Um and so one thing that my co-founder and I said is, you know, Josh and I ask stupid questions all the time. Like some of them are like, we just don't know the answer to. And I'm like, 
but no one ever relates to me as stupid when I ask the question. It's me trying to understand. It's me actively listening to you and saying, Reg, like, how does that work? Why, why does that work? Like, and interacting with you to understand your answers and come up with the next question and like really drill down to understand what your perspective is or what your area of expertise is. And that's, that's kind of a process. That's a, a learning process. But a lot of people live for, for the, the perception of themselves. They, they're afraid someone might look at them as, as such, or they're afraid to be seen as such or so on and so forth. So I think that becomes a barrier also. That's true. I mean, my ego is probably my biggest enemy. So half the time I'm like, oh, like you just got to give that up and, and ask the question or be curious or engage and stop worrying about looking good. And, and how do you work past that? You just do it. I just do it. I show up. I ask questions. I'm, I'm like, and most of the time when I ask a question afterwards, people are like, hey, that was a good question. Um, but you don't know until you start. Like, if you do not speak up and you don't, um, like, I show up to contribute no matter what I do. It could be um, I'm not running something, but I show up at an event and I'm like, how ca how can I help out? I'm not one of those people that's passive, that's standing by the wall saying, okay, do me now. Like, give me everything that needs to happen. I'm like, what can I do to help out? Like, what would make this more successful? And when you show up at things like that with that attitude, um, it just leads to a better level of understanding, a contribution. Um, my time's better spent that way. Awesome. Yeah. Well, um, I, I pretty much asked all the questions I could ask, and it's really cool because I've known you for a while now, but I don't think we've ever really had this like in-depth conversation, so I feel like I learned a lot about you. There are some things I definitely think I could apply to myself in, in regards to just sort of working past things because I have caught myself in the thinking of, if only I had X amount of money or if I had X dollars, I could do certain things. And I'll, um, I think I'm going to try to this year work, work past that, just sort of go for it. Yeah. I, I think when you have the mindset where you're we, like, you mentioned it earlier, like, who do you have to be to have that kind of result? Like, what kind of way of thinking do you have to have? So if you're going to be stingy in your life and say, okay, I am not going to share with people, I'm not going to contribute with people, not until I'm... 60 something and I have a bunch of money and then I feel like I have enough to contribute to others. That's kind of the life you're going to live for a long time. Whereas you, if you say, okay, well, I may not have money, but I have my ideas. I have my hands. I have like um, my connections. I have things that I can bring to the table and I'm going to do that. And you weave that into your life. You're living a life where you've incorporated that as one of your objectives and you're following through on it. It just shows up in your life. And money kind of comes after so you like money is one of those things that falls out of you figuring out what your passion is in life and how to be successful at something. And it's not the goal. It should never be the goal. It just kind of just falls a out of, Yeah, it, it falls out of doing the right thing, you know. All right, thanks. I, I appreciate you sitting down with me. And I know that's probably not why you came to New York, but I'm glad you carved out like a chunk of time to hang out. Yeah, awesome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. No yeah, that's it. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Catalyst Case, Sendstroke, Wildhorn Outfitters, and of course, Blue Microphone. This is Reg, and you're listening to Thought Hack.